0: Hey everyone, how are you? Welcome to Leading with Empathy and Allyship. I'm your host, Melinda Brianna Epler, the founder and CEO of Change Catalyst. At Change Catalyst, we build inclusive innovation through training, consulting, and events. This series goes deep and gets real. We build empathy for underrepresented and historically marginalized people and provide tangible, actionable steps we can all take to be better allies and advocates for each other. So today we're discussing advocating for people with disabilities. Please welcome Tiffany Yu, who has been a great friend, a colleague, and an ally for years. Tiffany is the CEO and founder of DiverseAbility. Welcome, Tiffany. Hi, thanks for having me. So I wanted to start first by just telling a brief story. A few years ago, Tiffany was a great ally for me. And I don't know that we've even really talked about this. So I was getting ready for my TED talk at TED headquarters. And for whatever reason, despite my speaking on hundreds of stages at this point, speaking at TED really set off all my imposter syndrome, my deep anxiety about speaking, fear of speaking that I'd gotten over years ago, but suddenly it all came back. I I think it was the pressure of speaking to up to a million people. And actually it turns out it's been well over 2 million at this point, which would have made my anxiety a lot higher at the time had I known. Tiffany learned that I was doing a TED talk and asked if she could help by creating an event where I could practice it. And she created a whole diversibility event around allyship. She brought several other speakers to talk about it. And then she brought me in as a keynote to practice my TED talk. And then she asked the audience to give feedback on cards, which was amazing. Um, And my talk was at that point, definitely not in the shape that it was when I got to TED. Um, It was uh, definitely still in practice mode, (laughs) I would say. And that feedback and that event gave me the confidence that I needed to step on stage at TED with Grace. And so I wanted to thank you for being an ally for me at that time. It was really, really meaningful for me and I really appreciate you and that you did that, so thank you. My
1: heart, of course. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things we're trying to do within the disability community is how can we be more intersectional in our movements? How can we also bring people in who wear other hats than the lived experience of being disabled? Um, yeah, so, so I'm, I'm really grateful we were able to do that event And I'm so excited. And if anyone who was listening to this hasn't seen her talk yet, definitely check it out on TED. Let's get that two million to a three, especially now that
0: we're all digital. Awesome, awesome, thank you. Okay, so let's let's start with um, what's your story? Who are you? How did you end up doing what you're doing now? And then lastly, what are you doing now?
1: Sure. So I I do want to preface that a little bit of a content warning. So I'm going to share my personal disability origin story. And there is childhood trauma in there. So I just wanted to preface that. So I actually see kind of two origin stories emerging here. One is Tiffany becoming disabled. And then the second is Tiffany growing into her disability identity um, and what I'll call disability pride. So the, the first origin story started when I was nine, Right around Thanksgiving weekend, my my dad and I and a couple of my siblings went to drop my mom off for a business trip at the airport, and on the way home, he lost control of the car. So this was a single vehicle car accident. Uh, He unfortunately passed away, and I sustained a couple injuries from the accident. I broke, I think it's called my femur, the, the big bone in your left leg, a couple bones in my left leg, and my right arm was paralyzed. After the accident, the bones in my leg healed. I was uh, using a wheelchair for about four months. I relearned how to write with my left hand and I went back to school. And I was kind of thrust into this environment. And I often like to tell people that, you know, this isn't just a disability story, it's the story of what it's like to grow up as the daughter of Asian immigrants. There's grief and trauma in all of our disability narratives, but in the case of losing a parent as well, that adds an extra layer. And because it happened as a kid, that also adds an extra layer. So I really love disability origin stories because they are so different and they really color the lens through which those of us who are disabled move about the world. So in my case, my family just, we did not talk about the car accident after the car accident. I often joke that it was kind of like going to the grocery store. You went to the grocery store, you got your groceries, and then now it's a new day. And so I didn't really have spaces to to really heal and, and understand what had happened. And so fast forward 12 years later to 2009, the car accident happened in 1997. In 2009, I really started thinking about how much of my life I had spent growing up as a victim kind of trapped within this story. I felt like I was hiding so much of a core part of who I was. I, and, and also the physical manifestation was that I wore long sleeves all the time. I was just trying to hide everything. And I had never really gotten opportunities to talk about my disability origin story. So when I first started DiverseAbility in 2009, the premise was to start a movement around disability pride. That was an aspiration for me personally as well. I didn't really know what disability pride meant. I didn't really know what it meant to be proud of a disability identity. And I didn't know what it was like to feel powerful and strong and courageous in my disability story. So those are two, two origin stories. And then today, I'm running diversity full-time, kind of transitioned out of the corporate world similar to you, moved into something I really cared about. And every single day, I get to meet new people and hear their stories. And, you know, I think back to this allyship event that we had. And one of the things I talk about a lot is, how can we democratize visibility? How can we democratize storytelling? Who gets to decide whose story is told? and why and why is that person's story more important than someone else's
0: thank you thank you for sharing your story can you talk a little bit about what it is that you're doing now and about diversability and what you do there
1: sure so diversability our tagline is the celebration of the diversity of our disability lived experiences there's a neuroscientist named vivian ming she also has made her way around some diversity inclusion spaces And one of the things that she said that has really kind of been the guiding light of all of our work is one of the best ways to tackle bias is through real life continuous experiences with people who challenge your stereotypes. So what that meant for us pre COVID was how can we get disabled and non disabled people interacting face to face in person as much as possible. If that's not happening in the workplace, which is where most of us spend our time and you know we can talk a little bit about disability employment i mean the number the employment number hovers around 20 to 25 percent employment depending on what number you're looking at and so if you're not able to kind of get those interactions there how can we as diversability help curate and facilitate some of those interactions for you so part of that is hosting our own events which we had hosted in a handful of different cities it's partnering with people like you melinda through tech inclusion to make sure disability is represented on the stage, in the audience, you know, in all levels, um, and working with different organizations and universities. I will say now in our current COVID state, um, a big part of what we're trying to do is leverage whatever dis- digital visibility we do have to continue to help democratize storytelling. So if you follow us on Instagram, you'll see every, every other week, we host someone from our community, from someone who has a chronic illness, and then also kind of wearing our advocacy hat of elevating some of the access issues that are currently existing in this pandemic.
0: Let's go right into that. So what's going on? What are you working on specifically right now during the pandemic? And, and I guess also the economic crisis, I think, is, is a part of that as well.
1: For people who do want to help shed light on some access issues, there is a campaign going on right now called #NoBodyIsDisposable. Is Disposable. You can go to nobodyisdisposable.org to have template letters that you can send to your elected officials. Um, at the core of that is really trying to prevent discriminatory hospital triage plans and practices if the time comes um, when someone who is deemed as having a poor quality of life ends up getting sick and needs to go to the hospital. Luckily, I'm safe, I'm safe at home. I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge, you know sheltering at home is a luxury. I am at home, I am safe, I am healthy, but I know that outside of my space that dynamic is also existing. I think the other thing that's really happening is, you know, we have the immediate health threat of the this pandemic, but then there's kind of a secondary pandemic that's happening which is really around a mental health crisis. And a lot of what I've been spending my time doing is how can we make sure that a community that is consistently socially isolated and excluded, how can we make sure we help them stay connected? And then how can we also make sure we're checking in on their mental health and I'm checking in on my own mental health. And Melinda, I remember when you and I chatted a little bit, I spent the first part of this shelter really looking inward and really making sure that I had my own cup full Before I could reemerge into our community and create space for uh, for what our community members were feeling
0: 100 I did the same thing, not only my mental health, but also my financial safety (laughs) as well. Um, And and that that was that was key for me was to bring down the anxiety and and really um, Be present in this in this be able to be present and um, and be there for others.
1: One of the things that I I have shared is that last year I got diagnosed with PTSD, with post-traumatic stress disorder. And I think oftentimes when we talk about disability, we talk about it mainly in terms of the physical disability, but the majority of disabilities, I believe 70% are invisible. Those include chronic illnesses. Those include diagnosed mental health conditions. There are a lot of undiagnosed mental health conditions that people don't realize. Uh, have treatment plans as well. And there's a huge mental health component to being disabled as well, even if it's a visible or an invisible manifestation of it.
0: So could we talk a little bit about intersectionality and um, your intersectional identities. Our very first episode of Leading with Empathy and Allyship was focused on xenophobia and a- anti-Asian xenophobia and racism in particular. And I know that you're feeling your Asian identity in, in different ways right now. Can you talk a little bit about intersectionality overall and, and what you're experiencing?
1: For those of you who are new to the term intersectionality, it is when you hold multiple oppressed identities i just i just like defining things because it was interesting the first time i ever talked about intersectionality in a public place it was circa 2018 and i was having someone reveal blog posts and they're like tiffany i don't know what this term intersectionality is and sometimes when i look at these different feminist movements or these other movements they're using terms that i don't understand that came from an ally the feedback was just delivered in it in a in a loving way, uh, and he was my mm-hmm. friend. Yeah, so I'm Asian. Oftentimes our community will put ourselves into people of color, which means non-white. That term is mainly used within a US context. I'm also disabled, I'm also a woman. I can't wait to rewatch watch or, or re-listen to that episode with Michelle because There is a group out here called Stop AAPI Hate, and they have an infographic where they show that 42% of reported hate crimes against Asians, 42% are happening in California. In California state, which is where I live, I live in San Francisco, and over two X Asian women more likely to be targets of harassment or attacks. What that means for me is that when I prepare to go outside, if and when I do, which has been very seldom, I wear my mask, I pull my hair back, have my gloves. I am not only afraid of the risk of potentially contracting COVID, and then if it turns out I do need to go to the hospital, what they will determine around my perceived quality of life because I do have a disability and I do have a mental health condition, then even if I'm not thinking about that, the world sees me as an Asian person. And I don't know who is going to say what to me, and who can potentially attack me or do whatever. Because now that we're all sheltering, we don't have as many bystanders or as many uh, as many spectators, unfortunately, to call to call things out. Um, and so, so and so, those are realities. It's you know, there was a period of time again at the beginning of this quarantine where I felt like my head was exploding and imploding at the same time because this is when I was really seeing intersectionality at play because if I walk out onto the street and someone attacks me, they don't care that I'm disabled. All they see is an Asian person who, you know, depending on whatever our leadership is saying, may be, uh, may be carriers of this virus. Um, and, and that is false. There's an emerging area within disability advocacy called the Disability Justice Movement. The Disability Justice Movement emerged because it wanted to acknowledge intersectionality and the erasure of other oppressed identities in the emergence of the disability rights movement. Most of what we see right now in terms of disability advocacy, and it is changing, but previously it was very white. um, Previously it was very gendered. It was very male dominated. And previously it was very focused on wheelchair users. And again, when I think about democratizing visibility and democratizing storytelling, how can we show that disability looks like so many different things? And I oftentimes will get people making a comment to me saying, oh, but I don't consider you disabled. And while I understand that they are trying to be well-meaning, when we say things like that, and you know, of course, this is going into our conversation around allyship, when we tell a disabled person that we don't consider them to be disabled, what it's doing is it's further perpetuating stigma that being disabled is a bad thing that disability, and when we don't use words like disabled or disability, it's saying that we think that that's a bad word and that there is shame around it. So yeah, part of the reason why I think I'm as visible as I am and as vocal as I am is because this disability looks like me too. It looks like a young Asian woman who got educated, who worked at Goldman Sachs, who now gets to hang out with Melinda, you know? (laughs) So, um, So
0: yeah,
1: it's like, yeah, how can we diversify, how can we diversify what disability looks like?
0: yeah and and that that, the comment about not seeing your disability is i think similar to people saying they don't see color or they don't see race and and it's an an invisibilization that can happen It's a lack of recognition of somebody's identity
1: and honestly that's one of the things i'm learning too is you know i i have told my disability origin stories many many times i have corrected people's language many many times and I think a lot, and, and Aubrey Blanche, I think, talks a lot about this, too, about call-in versus call-out culture. So mm-hmm. I, now what I'm understanding and what I'm viewing every single conversation as, as a reset. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this conversation as this is the first time, Melinda, that you and I are having a conversation around disability allyship. This may be the first time that many of your listeners are learning about disability for the first time. How can I be compassionate around the fact that not everyone has been sitting, sitting in a disability identity for over 20 years sitting in disability work for over 10 years. And so if you use differently abled Let's continue to have the conversation. And then at the end, maybe I'll be like, Oh, hey, by the way, I just wanted to explain that Maybe that this is the reason why I don't use the word differently abled, and here is a link to some journalism guidelines around preferred preferred language or words to use when talking about our community.
0: I've been constantly learning since I started doing diversity, equity, inclusion work, and when I first started doing this work, I heard over and over again use the term people with disabilities, use the term people with disabilities, and then I started hearing maybe three years ago, four years ago, a lot of people talking about, well, that's not how I wanna be identified. I wanna be identified as disabled. And so there's this people first language versus identity first language. And I don't think there's one way that everybody says and people like to be identified differently. The other thing that I've learned is that for a lot of people who are disabled, disabled people that, they want to be identified by their specific disability. So autistic, uh, people on the spectrum, people who are blind or have low vision, people who are deaf and hard of hearing. Can you talk about this a little bit? First, what do you prefer? And then what is the best practice around language?
1: I loved the way that you framed this because you're really highlighting, again, the diversity that exists within the disability community, right? Mm. Every, everyone has, has different preferences. And, and before I go into language, I, w- I just wanted to note that one of the things I often think about with my own disability experiences, and as I hear about others, is the dehumanization of the disability experience. So what I mean by that is oftentimes people will come to us and say, give me the guide, give me the guide to language, give me the guide to disability etiquette. And when we create guides like that, it's another way that I feel like our community is dehumanized by saying, oh, there's this, there's this one right way to do things here. Here are all the answers in this book. Um, so this is, yeah, this is the feedback that we often get within the inclusive design space, which is, you know, my, my thinking is you design for one to design for all because if you create a tactile watch Chances are I will have difficulty putting it on. I mean, I just have difficulty putting watches on. So That watch was designed for people who are blind or low vision. It's not designed for people who have brachial plexus injuries, which is the name of the type of paralysis that I have. So Yeah, just wanted to preface that all of this kind of exists on a spectrum. I come to this with my own lived experience. And also I'll bring in some other people's experiences as well if they've given me permission to and consent to share their stories, but back to language. So, I think language is so fascinating and this is part of why I still do this work because I am still learning as well. And I will share an anecdote where I spoke on I spoke on a panel with another disability advocate who has has been doing this work for I would say four decades longer than I have. <laughs> and i was making a statement around going into my first professional work environment and no one no one was really judging my abilities there or the fact that i was disabled and one of the things that she mentioned to me was that it is only when we talk about things in the context of disability where we bring in ability versus disability if i didn't hold my disability identity i would not be talking about someone judging me based on the fact that based on my abilities as a person of color or not, or as a woman or not. I'd be talking about the capabilities and the qualifications for the job. Very sensitive nuance that I just wanted to bring on here. But yeah, I think for me, person first versus identity first language is very personal. So identity first language kind of came into popularity, as you mentioned, three or four years ago when you started hearing people want it, wanting to be identified by identity first. And... The politically correct context for people with disabilities, person-first language, was that you wanted to see the person first. And there still are a lot of disabled people, and even if you read formal documents, people often use person-first language. That's still, at least within the US, is the politically correct way to, to, to write it. I will often alternate between the two because I prefer to describe myself as a disabled person. Because if I look at my other identities, I'm not telling you that I'm a person who's Asian or I'm a person who's a woman, right? right? right. I'm not not distancing myself from my other identities. So I will say identity first language, again, is really centered around disability pride and ownership over a disability identity. And one of the things that I have found interesting in this work is that there are some people who are not proud of their disability. Um, they may have acquired it later in life, like not as a kid like I did. And it, it may, um, the, the disability that they have may de- deteriorate over time. We are going to go through stages of grief. Like I, I have to acknowledge grief within my own disability story because I used to be able, I used to be right handed, I used to be able to use both hands. When you experience any type of loss, you are gonna go through grief, right? And the last couple of stages of grief are acceptance. You have to go through that whole journey. And honestly, for me, that journey took over, took over 10 years. It took 12 years from, from the time that I became disabled in order for me to then grow into that second disability identity origin
0: story. I do think sometimes disability is framed as a loss, as a lack of rather than as a unique quality. And I think that's probably what's behind sometimes people saying differently abled. Again, one of the big things about allyship is asking is asking how somebody wants to be identified and, and really listening to that and using that and, and being an ally when somebody else calls them something else and, and say privately telling that person, you know, I, I know that this person likes to be called this. You can ask them yourself, but here's what I've heard.
1: I do not see disability as a bad word. I look at all of the opportunities that I have in my life and how enriched my life is. And I think all of that is because of my disability identity and again it's it's oftentimes and it's these little nuances melinda that you mentioned like when we say this person did xyz despite their disability in that context we're framing disability as a bad thing right but it's like Mm -hmm. this person did xyz because of their disability my biggest personal achievement that's happened recently is i climbed mount kilimanjaro and the journey of me getting there was really rooted in how proud i was as a disabled person and how I wanted to have this experience to, you know, first of all, was a very meditative experience. But for me, that experience I, I, and and again, I'm not sure because I, I, I do wear my disability identity. I don't think I would have decided to do that had I not been on this journey of really embracing my own disability identity.
0: This year marks the 30th anniversary of the ADA, the American Disabilities Act. Can you say a bit about why that is so important?
1: July 26th is the date. Please save it. Uh, and if any of you are looking at ways to kind of celebrate this milestone legislation, I know Disability Pride Philadelphia is organizing a month-long series of events, and you can tune into Diversability We'll help curate some of those on our community calendar. But for those of you who haven't watched Crip Camp on Netflix, I would highly recommend it. it um, it is a documentary around a bunch of kids who went to, a bunch of kids with disabilities who went to a camp called Camp Gened and because they got to meet each other in that context and really, I think, developed their disability identity rooted in community, were they able to then go on and advocate, which led to the 504 protests, which was linked to the precursor to the ADA called the Rehabilitation Act. The ADA, anyone can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's the first piece of legislation that prohibits the discrimination based on disability. I think there are two things that are kind of happening there and this was passed in 1990, which is why this year is the 30th anniversary, is on the one hand, I want to acknowledge that there are still a lot of gaps in the ADA. I believe that people who have certain types of chronic illnesses don't fall under protections discrimination is still rampant our employment numbers have barely moved since the passage of the ADA meaning there is still <laughs> there's still some some work that we need to do but i also want to acknowledge that i feel really proud to live in a country that at least has that initial piece of legislation and i am learning know when we first started diversability i was like we're going to do all this grassroots community building and at the time i was living in new york and when i met um when i met the commissioner from the new york city mayor's office for people with disabilities i was like hey i do this diversability community thing like how can we work with your office and he's like tiffany i need you to show up at city hall because if you're not showing up there then we don't know how to advocate for your needs and um I do, I am part of the San Francisco Marriage Disability Council now where I am, our two main focus areas are around employment and are around affordable housing. But yeah, it's an important year for us to realize there's still a lot of work to be done, but it's also for us to celebrate, hey, by the way, like it is amazing that we do have a piece of legislation that protects our rights. And for those of us who are disabled, we can can tap into that although there is a part of me you know again with my with my allyship hat on which is i never want to use litigation as a reason for people to care about our community which is unfortunately i think historically how how we have gotten more people to care is through take, by taking legal action
0: mm, yeah I think that is the same in in companies too is not not around legal action. Well, I do think legislation actually can make a difference inside of companies and and that also can force policies internally, but then there's an additional policy making internally in companies around inclusion as well and and can you talk a little bit about what leaders in companies, leaders of teams, leaders of companies can do to lead with empathy and be better allies for people with disabilities?
1: I will offer a kind of like a multi-pronged approach. (laughs) Um, So the easiest thing to do that literally takes no work or limited work and everyone who is watching or listening to this can do is to follow disabled people and to follow disability organizations on whatever social media channel you are most active on because for you to be an ally you need to, if you are not entrenched within the disability community unintentionally and I know I know not, no one is trying to deliberately exclude but if we're not visible on your feed or wherever we need to be then then sometimes our um, Our needs are forgotten. So that's number one easiest thing to do. Then the second thing to do is to really, um, and Melinda, I actually think you have been an incredible ally for our community. Really get yourself entrenched within the community. So now that you're following these people, maybe DM them. Say, "Hey, I read. You know, Alice Wong just came out with this incredible article on Vox. DM an advocate that you admire by letting them know. Like." Melinda, you and I have talked about on this call that like, fundamentally all of us just want to be seen. There is just such a human desire to want to be seen that, our commu- that the disability community just has not gotten access to. And so one of the things I think about, Melinda, is like you have access to spaces that I don't have, right? And by you hosting this and having Jasmine, the interpreter here, and Maggie, the captioner, is hopefully setting a standard for other event organizers to make sure that those are included. Now that we are in a digital space, what are we doing to make our digital content accessible? There is a great free resource called, called otter.ai, O T T E R.ai, that transcribes conversations through AI, uh, through artificial intelligence. Um, and if you don't have access or the budget for, a live captioner maybe that's that's a good a good backup plan um and so there are and then are you captioning the videos that you're posting to your social media my biggest thing is how can you hire more disabled people please (laughs) because the more disabled people the more people with disabilities that you hire the better your company becomes and again on the language You know, if you are in a meeting and people are talking about hiring or how to put their their hiring materials together and you notice that someone, it it doesn't explicitly say like, oh, we're an equal opportunity employer for XYZ and people with disabilities, kind of just bringing that up. To me, I look at companies like Microsoft and Google and Facebook and Salesforce, that's now, you know, is now building up their office of accessibility. These companies know that this is important and they are building up those teams. Otter.ai, which is this transcribing tool, was created by ex-googlers. If I look at some of the tools that I personally use to help make my content accessible, they were all created by ex-googlers. Not all, but a lot of them were created by ex-googlers. And, and you know, I think I think all these companies still have work to do in terms of in terms of hiring, but for me that's saying, here is a company that really tried to ingrain accessibility into all different parts of how it was operating. And I also want to acknowledge that, you know, the engineers and developers who are building the products may be different from the hiring managers. But the fact that now I'm getting recommended to tools that were created by former engineers at this company is telling me or is signaling to me that this company made it important in all areas of their company that that a disability-centered view was important. How can we be more disability-centered in all of our work?
0: Yeah, and I just want to add something that accessibility is not a nice to have. It's a must-have. And so like, we are not an organization that has a lot of money and, and we're, we're hurting financially right now, but we have still figured out a way. And accessibility is the last thing that we'll cut in our budgets if we run out of Uh, money. So I I think that's another, we have to reframe it as well. It's not, it's not, well, if we have an extra money, we'll, we'll do that. It's, you have to do that. And then add other things if you can, but, but, but accessibility is a key component of this.
1: One of the conversations that was happening initially when the pandemic started was around all of these government notices that were going out that were not accessible. uh, And people were people who who hadn't, you know, were deaf and, and didn't get the notice were being penalized because they hadn't even gotten the notices. So even, you know, even at a higher level, at the governmental level, it's how can we and when I watch, you know, our mayor and our governor do their town halls, I do notice that they have captioning and they have interpreters. The budget needs to be there. Whatever you are doing in terms of accessibility is actually better for everybody.
0: What do you need from allies right now?
1: When people meet me, they know what I'm going to talk about. (laughs) I'm going to talk about disability stuff. I'm going to talk about accessibility. I'm going to talk about intersectionality. I can only reach out to my sphere of influence and all of those people are already allies to me because they follow my work. But who are the people who are following you who have, you know, who may not necessarily be aware of of all of this stuff. Um, and so to the extent that you can help share share articles, help share posts or accounts that you think are, uh, that are written by disabled people and help, yeah, help disseminate those messages far and wide. And then the other thing I'll say is, you know, when we were meeting in person, I think it was just really important for me, just the people who showed up, you know, half the battle is showing up. We know that Oftentimes your first introduction to this conversation may be uncomfortable. Um, There are parts of my story that that are sad, that can be seen as sad, but yeah, I've been thinking a lot about what disability wellness looks like because I think when I was growing up, I thought that being disabled and being well were mutually exclusive, but yeah, how can we share more stories that aren't inspiration porn, that aren't like, oh, the fact that I showed up to this podcast is so inspiring you know Um, but instead share stories that are written by disabled people telling stories in their own words i think the new york times opinion series disability series is really helpful for that but i think yeah to the extent that you can consume as much content as possible that is disability centered from the disability community it will help help elevate our stories and then I think you know if we can put an intersectional lens on it. So as we think about which voices we want to elevate, are they people of color? Are they? Do they have other multiple oppressed identities that that we can help help them elevate their work as well? And one of the things I often look at is there is a there's a movement within the Asian community called Gold Open, and what Gold Open does. Or did was when there was a film that came out that either had an Asian director or someone in the cast. They would pool together their economic clout and financially, they would buy out movie theaters. And I thought that was such a powerful way for that community to show that I am putting my money in this community because these stories are important. So one of the things that we're doing at DiverseAbility is we are highlighting disabled authors and disability-owned businesses that you can support. And Interpreter Now is deaf-owned, are we putting our money into places that help elevate disability-owned businesses? Where are we using our economic clout?
0: So you touched on this earlier at the beginning. As advocates, sometimes work is really hard. It's emotionally and even physically draining. And as marginalized people ourselves, and also working against systemic barriers and biases, um, how are you taking care of yourself? How do you refuel to be an ally and an advocate
1: yeah such
0: an important question
1: and sometimes i feel i feel a little bit of shame around answering that question because i'm not doing as much as i could i have really been taking care of my mental health and that has been meditating twice a day and honestly everything that i'm going to tell you now i i did not do pre-quarantine but um i'm meditating twice a day both at seven thirty a.m and seven thirty p.m I'm rooting myself in gratitude during doing gratitude journaling. And one of the hard lessons that I learned, again, you know, my, my PTSD diagnosis came in 2019 because I started getting really bad triggers from retelling my origin story, um, for the last couple of years until, until I got the diagnosis and then treatment. And what I was realizing was I was trying to do all of this work and my cup, again, my cup wasn't full and it was manifesting itself in ways on my body that made it really hard to show up for other people within my community. So so yeah, I think doing the inner work is so important. Um I still am talking with my therapist. I am super grateful. Um I've been doing a lot of reflecting around if I had if I hadn't gotten treatment for PTSD last year, how much more difficult this quarantine and social isolation period would be now. So so yeah, I feel bad that they're not any groundbreaking things, um, meditating and gratitude journaling. I'm taking a class right now on Coursera called the Science of Wellbeing. It's known as the happiness course at Yale, and there's no required reading. You just watch the lectures. And honestly, I will say I'm now in week six, and I did post this on Twitter by taking that class I am realizing, and what that class goes into, it goes into, here are all the reasons, here are all the things that we think should make us happy, but don't. Here are all the reasons why we're not happy all the time. And here are concrete tactical strategies that you can do to increase your happiness. I'm feeling better, I'm feeling whole. Um, I also think that this digital environment is a great way to help people feel seen again just slipping into someone sending someone a text or sending someone a direct message just saying hey i saw that post i want to acknowledge that's that's where you are right now or i really appreciate this content you put out both makes me feel happy and makes the receiver feel good too
0: thank you tiffany this has been amazing appreciate you and everyone keep this going keep the conversations and the learning going and be brave be courageous, take a new action. Join us each week for Leading with Empathy and Allyship. You can sign up to attend live with audience Q&A. You can also catch the podcast or video, and you can stay in the loop by going to changecatalyst.co, changecatalyst.co, and signing up for our newsletter. So don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, and we will see you next time. Thanks, everyone.